Thanks for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to come to New York and uh, uh, speak at this meeting, which I've been to a few times. So uh, this is near Leeds, just in case you don't go to the north of England. It's the most beautiful part of the UK, so visit if you're around. Um, my disclosures, so I do a lot of clinical trials for CLL over the last uh, many years, and uh, most of these disclosures are regarding that. So I've been given a challenge uh, to talk about the sequence of novel therapies, and uh, of course, the world has changed dramatically. You know, I, qu I qualified in 1985, and when we in 1985, we had alkylating agents, and we, we added some steroids. And then for the next 20 years, really, we, we went through pure analogs and then combinations. And really, in the last 10 years, there's been a huge, as, as we've seen today in many talks, expansion in, in targeted therapies for CLL and, and other diseases. And in red are the uh, therapies that are given either continuously or for a, pre a period of time, uh, which are the novel targeted treatments. At the top, you can see the, the clinical trials in the UK. If these are the academic frontline trials, which have uh, certainly uh, 10 years or more ago were very slowly recruiting and uh, didn't need to be quick, but now we have to be much more adaptive in our trial design to try and address the questions that, that need to be answered in clinical trials. And uh, we've heard a lot about the understanding of the biology of the disease. So um, CLL is changing dramatically. And we've also heard about the genomic uh, development and, and instability. I think we've seen this or certainly similar slides to this today, uh, that when we first see a patient with uh, CLL, as Rick mentioned before, the disease is generally clonally relatively simple, but then it develops over time. You can see the, the arrows, the, the blue and red arrows at the top of the curve, um, showing the, uh, the, the clonal evolution, even not on therapy. But then when we treat a patient at the bottom, you can see a selection of uh, more resistant or more genomically complex disease. And uh, uh, this is with chemotherapy, of course, with 17P and 53-deleted disease. But as we're now seeing with the targeted treatments, this can also be a selection of specific targeted uh, mutations. And uh, our challenge, I think, for the frontline patient is to avoid this leading to failure of treatment. And I'll show you at the end uh, one potential approach, which is uh, uh, sort of been learned from solid, solid oncology, solid malignancy. So what influences our choice of therapy? Well, first of all, the median age of diagnosis of CLL is 72, the median age of first treatment is 75. So we're not going to be trying to cure all of our patients, and it's clearly appropriate that some patients are managed in a uh, disease control type of way. But also there are many patients, and some of them are high risk genetically, or young patients who we, we certainly will want to move towards, towards cure of the disease. And I think with the targeted treatments, we are certainly getting close, or we may well have cured some of our patients without chemotherapy, although we have to prove it in the trials. Um, the factors that influence uh, the choice of therapy are, first of all, tolerance to therapy, and then the trials uh, the patients are very, uh, often very well motivated to stay on therapy, but as we've seen from the real-world data, which I'll summarize a little bit later on, this can be an issue. Uh, resistance to therapy, I mentioned, mentioned about clonal evolution. Uh, for patients, duration of therapy is important. So if you've got minor side effects, what appear to be minor side effects, then if you're on the therapy for the rest of your life, then they can be very significant, whereas if you have a short uh, time span of treatment, for example, with chemotherapy, then you'll put up with more side effects if you're going to get a good, a good outcome. Obviously, patient choice is important, particularly if we're not curing patients. And then, depending on, the, on the, where you live and, and, uh, and your coverage, 
the availability and cost of, of therapies is also important. So stopping treatment uh, will help with any of these things if we can get to effective therapies. I put this slide up, and I'm sure you've seen it before, because we have to remember that this is the Resonate trials of the first randomized trial for ibrutinib in relapsed refractory disease, a medium of two to three lines of therapy. Half of the patients with P53 mutated. This is a porous group of patients, and before we had our first randomized trial, which has only started, started recruiting probably about six, six years ago, these patients died. The median progression-free survival was probably less than a year. The median overall survival was around 18 months, 12 to 18 months. And you expect all these patients to have died. So, we, so getting the most out of BTK uh, inhibition is really important, and we mustn't change from, from ibrutinib or other BTK inhibitors uh, unless we have good evidence that what we're changing to is going to be at least as good as the outcome with, with ibrutinib. So the attraction of MRD eradication, and I spent many years looking at MRD in CLL and potentially come off therapy, uh, it can only be um, really of value if we improve on the outcome seen with ibrutinib. So this is in relapsed refractory disease, PFS, and of course we're seeing survival advantages. And one of the, the things which is becoming very apparent now, and we, we organized, and uh, I think Neil mentioned earlier, the randomized phase three trials. If we're having randomized trials, we shouldn't expect to see an overall survival advantage anymore because we sh that means that the patient has died because they've been randomized to the wrong arm of a trial, and that can't be ethically correct when we've got multiple therapies that we can rescue patients with. So we need crossovers. This trial didn't have a crossover, but patients obviously eventually crossed over. And you can see the dotted line is the ophthalmic patients crossing over and then eventually on venetoclax uh, to be rescued. So overall survival for this group of refractory patients uh, is very impressive for uh, ibrutinib alone. And we're out to four years and beyond. We've actually just completed five years uh, follow-up in this trial. Um, Frontline, and we've seen this data as well, is even more impressive. This is an elderly group of patients in Resonate 2. And... Uh, Despite having a median age of around 73, the, the overall survival is 74% at three years, so, um, or greater than that. So um, we're seeing really impressive um, durations of response, which we mustn't throw away. And finally, with ibrutinib, the, the line of therapy is important. So if you treat people in first line, you get a better outcome than second line or third line or subsequent line. And this is obviously with chemotherapy because we don't have the data with, previous, with other targeted treatments, but we can't assume that it's not going to be the same with other treatments. I think we're selecting out patients that are germically more unstable and therefore more like, likely to be uh, in, resistant to treatment and possibly intolerant. And we know from the work of Dan Lander, this was published uh, earlier this, this year, uh, that with um, ibrutinib we're, we're starting to see clonal evolution. We've seen it from the Ohio State data and one or two other groups over the years. Uh, but at this particular patient, you can see the clonal architecture of the patient changing, so the three clones arriving, the patient's in remission initially, uh, but um, as you can see, uh, as they relapse, uh, here the red, the red clone, which is uh, uh, the uh, Butated resistant clone expands much greater than the other clones that are going down. So we're starting to see clonal evolution in our resistant patients. And if we're going to avoid this, we need to avoid this. And probably in frontline is where we're going to avoid it the most. So the worrying thing, I think, is, is tolerance. And we've talked about tolerance in trials. These are the two randomized trials I showed you. So uh, we've now got four-year, almost four-year follow-up data, medium follow-up in these trials. And about 
A third of frontline patients are stopping, and they're stopping predominantly for side effects, 19%, but these are elderly patients. In the Resonate trial, the relapse trial, only 12% of patients have stopped because of intolerance to the drug. And we know there are some patients who can't tolerate ibrutinib, and a third of patients are stopping for failure of the drug, uh, presumably because of the genomic instability. We're getting a number of large series. I've just shown three of the large series uh, of real-world, if you like, um, data. And in these patients, uh, there's relatively short follow-up, first of all, um, because the rather than compassionate use schemes, which they, they go off, or, or in the real-world from Anthony Matto's uh, data. But what's a bit worrying, I think, is that even with a short follow-up, we're seeing 22% of patients stopping for side effects and 43% of patients stopping overall. So we really need to find ways of managing this drug and getting through the side effects. Otherwise, we won't see the benefits that, we, that we've seen in the clinical trials. And the, the outcome of, the, for example, the global uh, uh, the access scheme, which was almost 3,000 patients, was very similar to Resonate. So if the patients remain on treatment, we'll get the, we'll get the benefits. And we'll see the benefits. Um, what about the next generation of BTK inhibitors? So we've done now trials with A-calibrutinib and zanubrutinib and one or two other uh, irreversible inhibitors of, of uh, BTK. And this is obviously a tighter uh, kinome uh, inhibition with less of the, of the other kinases being inhibited, which may be important in terms of side effects. Uh, we know we, they appear, but this is only a phase one, phase two trial, with relatively short follow-up. So New shiny things are always better until you, we do the phase three trials and find out they have side effects. So we have to really wait until we see the, the results from the two phase three trials that have, that have now been completed in, in terms of recruitment or, or in follow-up. We probably see a little bit less bleeding and maybe less cardiac toxicity, but we're, we're still waiting really to know if that's true. We don't really know the cause of some of those side effects. Um, but the outcomes look look encouraging. Again, it's only two years of follow-up. So maybe the next range of beta-cannabinoids will allow us to get these, these drugs into patients uh, it's more effectively and um, have more patients tolerate the drug. We certainly have patients we've crossed over from ibrutinib because of symptoms to the next generation drugs which have been effective. I'll just mention, put one side up about Idella because uh, certainly in, in the UK, Idella's hardly being used now, certainly not at, in the early stages. This is the phase uh, three program at uh, 116 into, into 117 of uh, Idella versus uh, plus rituximab versus rituximab plus placebo. Uh, and the outcomes are, are reasonable, but not, probably not as good as ibrutinib because of the infections and the other problems. So I, I mentioned that because we'll talk about crossover from BTK inhibitors in a moment. Of course, there's a lot of excitement with Venetoclax, and you've seen the data for Venetoclax. And certainly in terms of, of avoiding clonal evolution, avoiding rigid transformation, eradicating detectable disease, and therefore having a much smaller burden or no disease for it to transform has got to be a strategy we will consider for the high-risk patients. Uh, however, if you look at the, this is the 17P trial with 158 patients, uh, the PFS is about two years. It's not completely comparable with the ibrutinib data, uh, but they're all relapsed refractory trial uh, patients, or almost all of them are. There are two patients who are frontline, I think, in this uh, study. Um, so we're seeing good outcomes. Uh, but what's notable with this drug is if you achieve an MRD negative remission, and about 15% of patients uh, in as monotherapy achieve an MRD negative remission in relapsed disease, your outcome is far better. So my impression, I've been using this drug for many year, several years now, is that it's the patients who achieve a really deep remission who do really well. And so we have to... To optimize therapy for, with venetoclax, we need to get higher proportions of patients into MRD-negative remissions. 
This, of course, led to the combination approaches, and Andrew Roberts presented the first data, published the first data with rituximab. Um, the Rano, which we'll hear further updates at ASH this year, now three years out, of course, with venetoclax plus rituximab, but the attraction here is a two-year fixed duration because patients really want to get off treatment, and if we're going to have failure of therapy, you're better being off treatment and then maybe more sensitive if you've been off treatment for a period of time. And so the data looks good. This is data we presented in the summer meetings for MRD. So on the right is the uh, BR, so 13% MRD at night, three months post-chemo, but at 18 months only 5% and 45% progressing. Whereas with the addition of just rituximab to venetoclax, we're seeing 60% MRD eradication in relapsed disease. This is mainly one prior line of treatment. So that certainly suggests we're seeing synergy which allow, may allow us to stop treatment. The, uh, and in this study, it is being stopped. The outcome looks good. But there's very few patients beyond two years. And of course, these patients are on treatment for two years. So the critical thing in terms of whether this approach will, will replace ibrutinib, I think, is what happens in the next two or three years. So what happens when we stop therapy? And, and if there's a difference between the MRD negative patients which there seems to be on the MRD-positive patients. And I said, we'll see the three-year uh, data at ASH this year. And so that's, uh, I think, encouraging. Uh, what about the real-world data? This was published very recently. Again, Anthony Matto's uh, um, work it's looking at uh, venetoclax in, in the real world. Most of these patients had failed ibrutinib before. So, uh, and you can see here the responses. So about or just under 70% of patients in the real world respond to a venetoclax monotherapy, predominantly mon monotherapy, although there are some combinations in this paper, and 17% CR. So we know we can sequence from ibrutinib to venetoclax and get responses to venetoclax monotherapy, which I think is an important when we're thinking about sequencing. What about going the other way from venetoclax to ibrutinib? So one of the challenges, of course, was the trials were all in the era, were all the same era, really, so we don't have a lot of crossover. In this uh, um, paper, there were a very small number of patients who went from venetoclax uh, to an alternative therapy. In fact, there were only five patients with ibrutinib, and only one of those patients responded. But these are clearly were heavily pretreated patients, and so we need to systematically look at what happens to patients coming off the venetoclax trials when crossed over to, to BTK uh, inhibitors. In terms of uh, the outcome, uh, in the real world, it's very similar to what we saw in the, in the trials um, with a PFS of around two years, median PFS, and overall survival shown there. So, so we can salvage patients who have failed ibrutinib with venetoclax-based um, therapy, mainly monotherapy. Um, in terms of the, of the crossover from one BTK inhibitor to another or BTK to venetoclax, this is again from Anthony's uh, data and uh, with a large number of patients uh, um, uh, crossed over but actually only relatively small numbers in each group, so 22, 16, Bolivar. And you see a crossover from one uh, TKI to the other. Uh, well, Idella to Ibrutin presumably this is mainly because of uh, intolerance, about just under two-thirds respond. But you get a higher rate of response when you cross from a TKI to venetoclax at so 76%. Uh, and then this is the outcome on the bottom right is other patients uh, crossed over to, um, to a venetoclax from ibrutinib. So you can see the outcome out to about two years. So we, we can at least get a decent remission and a reasonably durable remission by crossing over from ibrutinib to venetoclax. We have no data really the other way. This is Idella from Steve Coutre's uh, publication uh, this year with 36 patients who were treated with adalalacid plus rituximab uh, and crossed over to venetoclax. And again, about two-thirds of patients respond with a reasonably 
durable remission out to about two years. So, so TKIs can be crossed over to, to venetoclax. But the, I think the exciting uh, data, and we've seen some of it, is, is the new combinations, and we're, and we're going to see data in the next two or three years regarding that. So the, the first data, this was no, a notable trial, because this was the frontline cohort in, in one of our um, Vedetilax trials, and this, this, these 32 patients were recruited in 24 hours, so it was the fastest recruiting trial that I've ever been uh, involved with. My two patients uh, just barely had time to read the information sheets, and then we had to get them in the study. But... This is frontline, and in the back, and if you look in the peripheral blood, this is having stopped the combination uh, at 12 months, three quarters are still MRD negative in the blood. And if you look at the marrow uh, response, the best marrow response, three quarters are MRD negative in frontline, and that's better than we see with FCR, where we see about 50% MRD negativity at the best. So we're starting to see in frontline combinations where we stop treatment and see better responses than with chemotherapy, but a small. Uh, trial. However, we might see the randomized German 14 trial at this year's ASH as a late breaker, and that's 430 patients randomized to this combination or, or clamastabinituzumab, so that will be very informative, I think. We've done the combination, and, and we, we heard a little bit about it before, in relapsed refractory disease of ibrutinib plus venetoclax, and, it's, and these are patients who have uh, failed chemotherapy or 17P failed idella, and we're seeing uh, at the last ASH just under 30% MRD, well, just over 30% MRD negative in the marrow at six months, and that's increased again. Now, this will be presented at ASH again. So the, the combinations are seeing 40 to 50% MRD negativity in relapsed disease with ibrutinib venetoclax, and we're now uh, well on the way of recruiting into FLARE, which looks at this in front line. We have 100, over 100 patients randomized to IV to date in the UK. Um, we have frontline data, and we saw this as well from Captivate in a couple of talks, um, but very little response data, but we should see more at ASH. Uh, but in terms of the ibrutinib venetoclax combinations, a large proportion of these 14 patients MOD negative. So I think we're getting there with chemotherapy, uh, we're sorry, with novel uh, combinations in frontline, and we'll have, we have the phase three trials which are rapidly uh, recruiting at the moment. I think what the other thing we should consider is, is how we prevent or how we manage clonal evolution. And, and there's a lot of work in the, in the solid cancer work. We, in the Leeds, we've just completed a, a large renal cell cancer trial using this Darwinian tumor uh, evolution um, strategy. And this is a prostate cancer uh, paper from uh, the end of November. And, and I think it probably uh, applies for our CLL patients on continuous therapy. So if you have a, this, the, the model is with, this is with uh, a, an antiandrogen, if you have a, a tumor which has in green a resistant cell and you give it continuous therapy, you select out the resistant tumor, which then becomes uh, resistant to therapy, a medium of about 11 months by modeling. Uh, however, if you then use an adaptive type treatment, so you basically give the same drug, kill most of the sensitive cells and stop, you allow the, the uh, sensitive cells to outcompete the resistant cells. And when the tumor relapses, it's still sensitive, and you give another dose, so you give intermittent treatment. And that approach looks, allows the sensitive cells to, to compete with the resistant cells. And actually, in this study with uh, an antiandrogen in, in metastatic prostate cancer, if you give it continuously in the red, patients become resistant. So 14 out of 16 had radiological progression in a relatively short period of time, about 11 months median. If you give the, the intermittent treatment, Actually, only, only one had radiological remission, uh, progression out of 11. And so those sorts of strategies that, which are being adopted in solid malignancy, we should be considering in, 
hematological malignancy, and we've applied for funding, uh, and hopefully will be funded in the next couple of months, for a large trial taking this approach with ibrutinib, so taking patients both frontline uh, from the FLIR trial and in relapse who, on, who have been on ibrutinib for at least two years and in good remission, and randomize them to continuous therapy, oops, sorry, uh, continuous therapy or uh, intermittent treatment, which uh, has the potential to improve outcomes. So just finally, uh, the four main types of therapy I think we have to consider when we're thinking about sequencing of therapies. So FCR, again, we, with the advantage of FCR is in frontline, we, we get MRD negativity in about 50% of patients, and we probably cure somewhere between 15 and 30% of patients. They may be a specific type, the mutated patients, uh, but we'll see that in the, in the large trials that are now underway. Uh, with BCRI, we don't get MRD negativity, so in in frontline or second line, very rarely do we see MRD negative patients, although we're seeing very deep remissions now. Uh, there are obviously toxicities with these therapies of MDS we always worry about with, with FCR. Uh, cardiac toxicity and with a continuous therapy, that might be a concern going forward. There are mechanisms of resistance. With venetoclax, I think there's going to be some data probably this year's ASH regarding venetoclax resistance and mechanisms of resistance with venetoclax. Uh, but we're seeing deep remissions, certainly in frontline, when we're using combinations. So I think the future probably is um, combinations that lead to eradication of disease. So uh, to answer the question, does sequencing matter? The, the answer is almost certainly yes. The challenge is we don't really know which sequence to use at the moment because they all came at the same time. Um, I think the, certainly the treatment availability and patient choice is important, and we're continuing with large uh, clinical trials, but it's important to collect real-world data. I think now my, my take on, on, the, on the field is that we should be using ibrutinib if we're using non-chemotherapy approaches first because we have really good data going out uh, some years and maybe the second generation BTK inhibitors will, will compete with ibrutinib and reserve venetoclax we took some out for later. Although if we get patients off treatment and they remain in remission off treatment for a couple of years with VR, which we, might, we won't see this year's ASH, but next year's ASH, I think then we've got, a, we've got a competition between those two approaches because coming off therapy will, will allow patients to remain sensitive uh, to treatment. And I uh, like this, this trial because we're moving very rapidly from the chemotherapy era um, uh, where we're uh, trying to beat the disease into submission to targeted treatments, our golden bullets, but we just have to work out what to do next. And uh, unfortunately, the same people are holding their guns. So. And then finally, to invite you to Scotland next September for the IWCLL, which... Uh, be a lovely time to visit um, and uh, learn a lot more about CLL. Thank you very much.